Well, everybody has times uh, where they run away from God. We have times when we are trying to hide from God. And some people, the way they run from God or hide from God is pretty obvious. You might be like, okay, I can see for sure, you know, this person doesn't come, not involved in a church. They don't read their Bible. They don't pray. Uh, whenever they're, the activities they do are when we see them, it's like, yeah, they're far away from God. They've run from God. They're hiding from Him. Um, you can see that maybe people are running to gambling or drinking or drugs or crime uh, or sex. And you can just tell, well, they're breaking the rules and ignoring the rules. They don't care about those things, and they're running away from God, and they stay as far away from church uh, as possible. There might be people you've heard before, maybe at some point in your life you said, if I ever set foot inside a church's building, then inside the walls, like a lightning would strike or something like that. So we kind of know what that looks like to run from God. But then there's a, a more subtle and a more surprising way that people run from God. And, and some people run to the church in order to hide from God. They run to religion in order to hide from God. And so one of, one of the best places to hide from God is in the church. Because so, some people run to religious activity, to giving, to serving, to volunteering, to studying, uh, to praying with other people, uh, giving money to leadership roles. And what's challenging is that if you asked somebody who is running from God in that way, say, hey, are you running from God? Of course, of course not. Uh, I'm at church five days a week. You know, I'm always giving. I give, you know, the amount I'm supposed to give, even a little more than that. I read my Bible. I, read, I pray. I'm doing stuff all the time. Of course, I'm not running from God. And so the first person we talked about, they often, you can see they're running, and they might even say, yeah, I don't really want anything to do from God. But this person, uh, the person who runs to church or runs to religion, uh, would be someone who wouldn't really recognize that they're running at all. And the reality is that we can be religiously close to God, but relationally far from God. That we can have a lot of activity for Jesus, but not a lot of affection for Jesus himself. And we're ending this part in the Gospel according to Luke that we uh, have jumped in and out of over the last couple of years. Uh, but we're ending a, a part where Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem. He's been journeying to Jerusalem um, for probably about a month-long pilgrimage. And we, like we said at the beginning of the service, uh, Jesus is an expert on the good life. Uh, and his invitation is, follow me into the good life, into life as it's meant to be, the life you're made for. Surrender to me, give yourself to me, and I'll show you how life is supposed to be. And let me just give a very small recap of the Gospel according to Luke in terms of how much time is taken for the chapters. So chapters 1 through 2 in the Gospel according to Luke cover like 12 years. It's Jesus' birth. Uh, and then Jesus about a week old, and Jesus 12 years old, and so that's two chapters for that. And then chapters 3 through 9 cover like three years of his ministry in Galilee, uh, when he was just doing lots of stuff there, healing and preaching and casting out demons. And then the chapters we are finishing right now, chapters 9 through 19, uh, that we just finished, it, it was about a month. So you can kind of see, it's like, well, wait a second, that, that ratio doesn't work. Three, chapters 3 through 9, six chapters, was three years. Then chapters 9 through 19 was covering about maybe a month, two to four weeks uh, to get to Jerusalem, taking the pilgrimage there for Passover. And then chapters 20 through 24 is, covers one week in Jerusalem. And then today, chapters 20 through 21 covers four days in Jerusalem. So you, know, you can see things were going very fast, and now the closer Jesus gets, the closer we get to the end, the closer we get to his death, to his resurrection, things keep slowing down and more and more detail is given to us. And today, while he's in the temple in Jerusalem, he's confronting Jerusalem's religious leaders. 
and there's a, there's a mix of them, a mix of names of what they're called Pharisees or Sadducees. or they're not, They aren't synonyms. There's these different kind of groups, these different uh, camps, you would, you know, kind of like almost political parties. Like, well, there, there's these guys, there's these guys, and they all had their way of how they were trying to obey God and help other people do that. And he interacts with basically all of them when he's here. And these are the people that you would look at and, look at and say, those people are the really religious. Sometimes uh, my wife Katie, uh, you know, people will talk about, yeah, yeah, like, you know, we're Catholic, we're Lutheran, and then they'll say about Katie, but you're like really religious. I mean, for not that she's necessarily like, you know, always pushing like the Bible on people, but she, they just recognize like, oh, you like go to church every week. Like you are involved and you're trying to bring that in your home. It's not just like a name, like, yeah, I'm Catholic, or I'm Lutheran, and I go, you know, a couple times a year. And these are the people you would look at and be like, they're super religious. Uh, and if you, anybody you would think is on God's good side, it'd be these people. Like, I'm certain that if anybody, God loves anybody, if anybody has God's favor, it's, it's those people. And they were, you could see them as super righteous as well. But Jesus critiques them. And he has his most uh, challenging critiques for very religious people, which is confusing because it's like, I thought those are the people that are doing it all that. You, they wouldn't be getting critiqued. They're doing something right. In this passage we're in where he's going to critique them, we read the very end of chapter 19 last week, um, but I'm going to reread uh, chapter 19, verses 45 through uh, 48. If you're using the Black Bibles here, it's on page 879. So Luke chapter 19, verses 40, verse 45 to 48. And it says this, And he entered the temple, referring to Jesus, as the very first thing when he arrived, arrives in Jerusalem. And he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple the chief priests and the scribes, and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And so this sets us up for the, what Jesus then teaches for like about four days in the temple, uh, is that the hope of the people in the Old Testament was that God would one day come back to his people, and specifically he would come back to Jerusalem, the capital. Even more specifically, he would come back to the temple. The temple had been destroyed uh, when the Babylonians invaded them, and then they eventually the Babylonians get taken over by the Persian Empire, and then the Persian Empire says, we have a different policy, we're not going to take you out of your land, we're going to send you back, and you can go and work on your temple and rebuild it. And they rebuild it, and the kind of old-timers that had seen the previous temple, when they see the new one, they just weep because they're like this is nothing like what it was and not necessarily like oh the building didn't match up but it's like god isn't in this place it's empty we rebuilt it but it's empty god's presence is gone and so the hope was god would someday come back to his people and he'd come back to his temple and he'd fill it and be like just like the good old days and so what happens is jesus then walks in like he owns the place and if you you know if you walked into my home and started acting like you own the place, everyone would be like, this is weird, this is his place. But we act like we own the place when we do own it. And Jesus walks into the temple like he owns it, like it's his house. And he starts clearing things out. It, he, actually, the word here that he, uh, he began to drive out those who are selling things is the, actually the same word he uses for casting out demons. It's like, not saying that they're demons, but he's expelling this presence that shouldn't be in that place. And then he tells them, this is, you know, all these money changers, really, these people, they're kind of doing a, a service to people, is that if you're traveling from very far, you don't really want to bring a goat with you, for, you know, all the way across Israel. 
uh, but you can get there and then you can buy those animals on site and you would have to exchange your money because maybe you're from this region you have to do these money exchanges and so they're there uh, selling animals and exchanging money for people to make their sacrifices at the temple uh, but Jesus drives them all out because he sees that something deeper uh, a deeper issue is taking place he calls it a den of robbers or it could be called a, a cave of rebels and this is referring to I said last week how people, when they're trying to avoid the law, like they got in trouble, they would go out to the caves uh, so that the authorities couldn't find them. And so, but he's saying that the temple has become a cave where people who are breaking the law are coming to hide from God. They're coming to hide in the temple, hide in the church, coming to hide in the religion there. And so Jesus is God coming back to the temple, and uh, it's surprising how he reacts. That he doesn't go straight to Pontius Pilate's headquarters the Roman authorities, but he goes straight to the religious authorities and he confronts them. Instead of confronting Rome, he confronts the, the religious and clears out. And then we're told in chapter 20, verse 1, that one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the, the gospel. So what is he doing? He's clearing out these people that are hiding from God there so that the, all these people who follow him, the poor, the oppressed, the hurt, he can come in the temple so he can preach good news to them. And so this sets us up for what we're going to be answering today. How, how do we hide from God in religion? How do we hide from God in religion? And we're going to see three, uh, three ways in this passage. And so the first is uh, through, it's really three debates that Jesus gets into. And so one is through authority debates or questioning the, somebody's authority who is trying to uh, talk to us about God. And so chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, I'll just read those verses. One day as Jesus was teaching the, the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, but what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I'll ask you a question. Uh, I, will, I will also I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they're convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that, that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so John, John the Baptist, actually was Jesus' cousin. Uh, and, but he was the person chosen by God to prepare the way for Jesus to come. To prepare the people, look, the one we've been waiting for is coming. And then when John sees Jesus, he says, that's the one we've been waiting for. And so John the Baptist was preparing the way, but the religious leaders didn't like him. He called him out, called him a brood of vipers at one point. And so Jesus is like, I'm not going to answer this question on whose authority do I do this unless you'll tell me uh, where John came from. And they, you know, they're very like political. It's, it's like, well, we're the, playing the political game with we say this, they, so they don't want to give an answer. And basically they asked Jesus, you know, who do you think you are? Uh, you're not a leader here in Jerusalem. You obviously don't have money. You aren't even from here. You don't have any religious training from, through you know, our schools and systems. And it's like, you're kind of a country bumpkin. You're from Nazareth. Like, I mean, if you remember, some people ask, what good, is there anything good that can come from Nazareth? It's just this town way out there. And they're like, what are you, who, by what authority are you coming in here and telling us what to do? You don't have a degree. You don't have any authority. What gives you the right? And this is a way to hide from a critique. It's the way to avoid a critique because... Instead of dealing with whether it's true or not, he says this has become a cave where people are hiding from God. And instead of dealing with that critique, they say, well, who are you to be telling us that? 
It's a way to avoid, like, you know, do you know who we are? Like, we're the guys that study the Bible. We're the guys that have the authority. Who are you to come in and say that to us? And so you just question the, the person's right to give the feedback to you, so their credentials, their qualifications. And we might even say that to other people. You know, who are you to criticize me? We might say, uh, well, I know more than you. Like, maybe you would even, you know, I'll just use myself for example. Maybe you would come up to me and be like, hey, Mitch, uh, there's kind of this thing you said or this thing you did that wasn't quite right. And I could say, well, I mean, who are you to question me? Like, do you know how long I've read the Bible? How long, how many times have you read it through? You know, we might say it to other people, like, don't, I, I know more than you. I've got more credentials, more qualifications. Who are you to bring this critique to me? Or we might say to somebody, well, you're one to talk. You're a hypocrite. I see you doing this all the time. And now you're going to come to me and say that to me? Who, what gives you the right? Or you could just say, you know, Jesus said don't judge. So please don't judge me. These are just ways, instead of dealing with what the person's saying, just like, you don't really have the right uh, to bring this to my attention. And so a question for us to, to ask ourselves is, can people tell me I'm wrong? Can people tell you that you're wrong? Will you listen to them? Are you willing to listen? And all these ways are a way of kind of keeping God at arm's length, keeping God's commands, what he asks of us, at, guards, at arm's length. Because instead of being willing to receive it from somebody or from God himself, we say, no, no, I'm not... Uh, you don't have a right to say this to me. Then Jesus tells this story, verses 9 through 18. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that their inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus, what gives him the right to walk in like he owns the place? Well, he tells this parable, implying God has sent servants, he sent his prophets to you guys over and over again, telling you, you need to turn around, you need to start living differently if you want God's kingdom, if you want to have the life that he's made you for. And then finally God sends his son, Jesus, which we learn back in chapters uh, three and four, that Jesus was declared the Son of God uh, from heaven. And so they send the Son, and what do they say? Well, now if we kill him off, we can have it for ourselves. And they see Jesus as a threat. And he quotes this psalm, Psalm 118, about the cornerstone. And he's saying, look, the stone that is rejected by you will eventually become the cornerstone, that I'm maybe going to be rejected now, but I will be vindicated. And God, this psalm tells us that God knew He'd be rejected by his own people when he came. And then God himself coming as, as Jesus, the Son of God, and coming to him is, I'm going to be, me myself, I'm going to be rejected. Not just my prophets, not just my servants, but I'm going to be rejected by my own people. I'm going to bear their sin. And what is their sin? It's rejecting him. And Jesus says, the stone is either going to save you or it's going to crush you. And those are the only two options. And so which are you? He asked them. Second way to hide from God through debates uh, in religion is to question people's politics 
or, or to get into political debates. And so in verse 19, we're told this, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people, and so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the government. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And so, taxes, big issue. Their Rome has taken over the land of Israel, and now they're taxing the people of Israel to run their own stuff. Uh, and so there's this oppression happening. And so it's like, you know what, how can we get Jesus? Let's get him to say that we shouldn't give taxes to Rome, because now we can go report him to the authorities and say, hey, there's a teacher telling people not to pay their taxes. And so it's like, well, we can't, that's our way we can try to catch him. And Jesus, you know, moves out of it. He says, well, whose image is on it? I got a little so-and-tell for you. Uh, this isn't the actual denarius from that year. That would have been the emperor uh, Tiberius. That, that would, that's whose image would have been on the denarius that Jesus asked them to hold up. And those are very hard to find because of this very thing. People want a denarius that looks exactly like the one that uh, Jesus um, handed around. But this is one from uh, maybe 100 or 2 years later. Um, a denarius, and you can see the little image of uh, some of the emperor's face on it. And so he's like, well, whose image is on that coin? Oh, Caesar's. We'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then he could have also then asked, and whose image is on you? Or whose likeness is on you? And then they would have to say, well, God's. We are made in the image and likeness of God. And so he pushes them deeper. There's, they're hiding behind these politics, arguing about which parties and policies and politicians are right. And if we get these right, you know, God's kingdom will come to earth. Everything will be good here. And he pushes deeper and he says, I'm not going to get into that to debate. I want you to think about whose image is on you. Meaning also, well, how is God's kingdom coming to earth? It's coming to, to earth through, through you. You bear God's image to bring his kingdom. Then thirdly, there's a theology debate. And I won't read this, this whole part, but Jesus, uh, basically there's a group called the Sadducees, and they're very fo focused on the first five big books of the Old Testament, whereas Pharisees would have been like the whole Old Testament. Uh, but they really focus on the first five. And from those first five, they say, there's no evidence for expecting a resurrection of the dead. Um, how actually you live on, uh, how, how you have an afterlife, how you have something after death is through your children. And there's these laws in the Old Testament where it's like, well, if, if, you, if somebody marries a woman and that man dies before uh, they're able to have kids or have, will have a son to pass down his name, well, then a relative needs to marry her. And so they have this debate. They're like, okay, Jesus, uh, there was a guy, he married a woman, he died. And then, okay, his brother came to marry her so that he could have children so that his name would live on. But then he died. And seven brothers, they all keep dying, same woman, and then she dies and they never have uh, a, a son to pass on his name. So he's like, which one in the resurrection will be her husband? They all seven were married to her, so which one's going to be her husband? And Jesus is like, you, you just don't get that age, that marriage isn't a defining thing of that age. And so he's like, you don't understand what 
that's going to be like when the kingdom comes in full, that that's not uh, going to be a thing. And then he pushes them even further, and he says, well, you also misunderstand Moses, because they're saying there's no resurrection. And Jesus says, well, Moses, when God meets with Moses, and God says, who are you? Who should I say is sending me? He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Jesus is saying, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're dead and gone. I was their God. He says, in the present now, they are alive in a spiritual way, and they will be resurrected later. And so Jesus, again, is pushing deeper. And, that, and we can have you know, debates on theology and doctrine and beliefs and what truth is, uh, but it's, and they're important. It's, it happened throughout the history of the church. Of like, How do we understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man? How, how does all that work? Like, those are good debates to have. But if we only stay there, it keeps, can keep us at a shallow, superficial uh, level, a surface level. And we can debate things passionately that are making no difference in our life. And so they bring in this theology debate. And he's like, oh, let's have you rule on this while trying to trap you in something. And then the next part of this passage, it's like, okay, we've been talking about here's three ways to avoid, uh, avoid God, to hide from God. And then Jesus is like, I'm going to make a point of my own. So he says uh, in chapter 20, verse 21, he said, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ, or the Messiah, is David's son. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And so he's bringing up, there's this, you know, David was writing a while ago, he's our, you know, the best king we've ever had, and we're looking forward to a king, the Messiah, the Christ, to be a king like him, in his line, in his family line. He's like, but when David was writing, when he was still alive, he was saying, um, the Lord, meaning God, said to my Lord, and it's like, okay, wait a second, so who's God talking to? Well, he must be talking to the Lord, the, the Messiah. And so David is recognizing that the Messiah isn't just someone from his line, it's someone actually greater than him, that the Messiah is going to be his Lord. And it's that the, the Son of God, what we know is the Son of God becomes a Son of David. Uh, the Son of David is also the Son of Man. And Jesus really is asking them, you know, are you going to be an enemy of the Messiah, of God himself? Because it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right, right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so he's making them question, like, you're questioning me. I'm even greater than David was. And you need to watch yourself because God is going to put me on a throne. You know, he's not saying that super directly, but he's quoting and letting them infer from that what he means. And so he brings it back, which side are you going to be on? And then we, might, we should ask, well, who are God's enemies? Who are the enemies that are going to become this footstool? And that's where we get uh, into the next couple of verses. Uh, and I, let me just prep you for these verses by reading just one verse from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 19. It says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Then again, Exodus 22, uh, 22 through 24. If you mistreat the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the poor, then God will not, God will hear their cries and he will bring them justice. And there's this huge theme in the Old Testament and then going into the New Testament is that the people of God are supposed to care for uh, the vulnerable, the needy, uh, the desperate among them, which often is the poor, fatherless, meaning orphans, widows, people, and sojourners, people who are like refugees uh, around. So God's, that was always a measure of whether Israel was following God you could look at how well were they treating these groups of people. 
And so, but now, in light of that, look at what Jesus says then in verse uh, 45 of chapter 20. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. And listen to this. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And then there's this contrast. So uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Here's our second show and tell. This is uh, the widow's coin that she would have put in. These are very common. It's kind of worn down. But this is like the widow's mite that she would have been putting in. It's basically like a penny that she would be putting in the box. And Jesus is saying, beware of these people that have this kind of attitude and this kind of demeanor. And he says they're devouring widows' houses. And then it, you answer the question like, okay, they're not doing what they're supposed to. But then, okay, let's see this widow. Who is God pleased with? Is it these people putting lots of money in, who are doing these long prayers, the places of honor, that's their seating? Who is he pleased with? And it's not just, it's just because someone knows a lot and gives a lot does not mean God approves of them. And these people that he warns them against, they're praying for widows. And they're giving more money than widows, but they're devouring widows' houses, he says. And we can see there's going to be this reversal. The people that you think you're certain, these are the good people. And Jesus says, no, don't, looks can be deceiving. There's going to be this reversal of like this widow living in poverty, giving out of her poverty. She will be on top and they will be on bottom. And so how do we make this personal? Back in chapter 18, Jesus told this parable. And the parable was two men going up to God to pray, going up to the temple to pray. Uh, which one is going to be declared righteous or which one is going to be accepted by God? This Pharisee who went up and said, God, I thank you uh, that I'm not like other people that I do. I pray and I fast and I do all these things. I'm not like these, uh, all these sinners out there and especially this tax collector. And the tax collector goes up and he just says from a distance from God says, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Which one was accepted by God? And Jesus says, that one, the tax collector, that you would be surprised by his acceptance, was accepted by God. And it, what's challenging about that parable is that as soon as we are thanking God that we're not like the Pharisee who went up to God like that, now we have become the Pharisee. See how that works? The Pharisee says, thank you, I'm not like these other people, all these sinners. And as soon as we're like, God, thank you, I'm not so self-righteous and judgmental and hypocritical as that Pharisee. And then now we have become the Pharisee in that situation. If we think we're better than them, then we have become them. And so in what ways we have to ask in these scenarios where Jesus is, you know, going, critiquing people instead of saying, yes, I'm, don't have it, that's for them. Yeah, get them, Jesus. Like, I'm not like them. We should be asking in what ways am I actually like them? And the reality is, is that we all hide from God. Every single person in the world, ever since the very first humans turned from God, that we see the original temple that, that God had made was with Adam and Eve. He created the world. Adam and Eve were living in this garden. His presence was there. And what happens is they turn away from God. They decide, you know what? We don't really want God to be in charge. We don't want his authority in our life. And they turn from God. And what happens is they go from naked and unashamed to hiding. They cover up with these fig leaves, so they hide from God, and they cover up. 
and they have this shame about them. And then God comes in and he is asking where they are. And we can easily spend all of our time, you know, in these, in, on Sundays, we could just spend all of our time talking about politics, uh, of me going through and telling you what do the Republicans have right, what do they have wrong, what are the Democrats, you know, and going through politics, having political debates. We could spend all of our time here just talking about who's got their theology wrong, who has their doctrine and their beliefs wrong. You know, I'll hold up a book and be like, this person, let me tell you about how wrong this person is. Oh, maybe you guys saw that story and whatever thing. And we can debate theology and all that and debate politics and talk about groups and books that have it wrong. And if we did that, none of it would change us. Because that's all holding it at arm's length, just like these guys are doing. Let me, let's talk about politics. Let's talk about theology. Let's not talk about how I'm hiding from God. Let's talk about these things. And it keeps it all at arm's length. And Jesus wants to say, you, you're thinking of all these problems out here, but he keeps pushing it personal. Look at the problems in here. In the, not just in you too, in this community of how you are hiding from God. And he says, <laughs> there's enough, you know, we have enough problems looking in the mirror that we don't need to pull other people in to look at their problems. And so we should ask ourselves, can God tell us can God tell you what to do? And you might be like, well, yeah, of course he can tell me what to do. These guys would have said the same thing. And Jesus comes in as God, returning to them, and they're like, you can't tell us what to do. What gives you the right to come in here and tell me how to run my life? And when Adam and Eve, when they are hiding and they are covering up, God comes in and he says, where are you? And they said, we're afraid of you, and so we are hiding. And Jesus here is God once again coming to them saying, Israel, where are you? Where are you? You're hiding. And these are the church people they're talking to. They're the ones attending and serving and giving and volunteering and studying and discussing and debating and learning. They're the ones that are, uh, have their whole lives dedicated to God. They have lives filled with God's stuff. And yet they're using all of that God stuff to actually hide from God. And Jesus said about them, These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. That they're religiously close to God, but relationally far from Him. And God comes back to His house, and they say, who do you think you are coming in here, acting like you own the place? And we should ask, well, how, how did that happen? How did they get to this place? How could they be so dedicated to God, and yet be so far from God? How did that happen? Well, you can think for yourself. Maybe you worked for years to drop a bad habit. Maybe you, it took you decades or months to uh, stop an addiction. Or maybe it took you a really long time to start doing a good habit, to start doing a good thing. Like, man, I, you know, I knew for 10 years I should be in church. And then you finally get there and you finally come in. And now we kind of forget about how long and how hard it took us to get to some of those places. Is that, and then we can start to you know, feel good about ourselves. Like, look, I've kicked that habit. I've dropped that addiction. I've started all these good habits. And we start feeling good about ourselves. And then we kind of use that to hide from God, to feel like we're better than other people, a sense of righteousness, is that we get more and more involved with church. And then we are like, I'm the kind of person, who I, do, I say and do the right things. And that's kind of what defines me. And then slowly we become critical and judgmental towards others who are struggling, not remembering it took me years or it took me months to, to stop that thing that they're struggling with now or to start that thing that they want. And we forget that we had a need for grace uh, for a long time, and that we still need it. That the people who are most readily and easily give grace are those who know how desperately they need it. 
And what happens is we start covering up with our religious activity. And then we hide from God in the very place that we ought to find him, that we're lost at home. We talked about in the prodigal son, uh, the two, there's two lost sons, actually. And the younger son was lost far from home, and the older son was lost at home. And so we can be people in the church who are actually lost. And so God comes to us, Jesus comes to us, and he says, where are you? Are you hiding? Are you covering up? What makes you feel acceptable to God? And what do you rely on to relieve that feeling of shame and guilt and unworthiness and falling short? And so we shouldn't assume that we wouldn't respond like they did uh, to Jesus. That if Jesus showed up here today, would we respond in the same way that they did? Because the human heart hates to be told what to do apart from God's changing power. Would we welcome God into his own home? Would we say, you're, you're in charge, tell us what to do? Or to be like, hey, hey, sir, we'll discuss after service. You know, can you, you know, sit in the back quietly or something like that? And if Jesus came in here rebuking us in that way. And we can use church to make us feel good about ourselves so we don't have to actually deal with God. And so we should ask ourselves, what are you hiding behind? Good deeds, attending, giving, volunteering, maybe parenting in the right way, work, doing your job in the right way, serving, praying. And what happened, Adam and Eve, they use these fig leaves. And we can use these little fig leaves of trying to cover ourselves up and being like, God, oh, this makes me feel like less ashamed, less guilty, and that's how I can hide from God and feel good. And what God does is he invites us to come out of hiding, to drop the fig leaves, and not to come and just not be covered at all, but to have a better covering. Because what happens shortly after God comes and says, where are you? And then he tells them, this is what's the consequences, the curse that's flowing into the world because of what you've done. But then he kills a couple animals, and then he covers them. They try to cover themselves, and then he kills a couple animals, and he gives them coverings. And that might make you think, like, wait, wasn't there animals getting killed somewhere else in the Old Testament? Like, oh, yeah, the sacrificial system, that when people brought an animal to the temple, to the priests, they laid their hands on it, they were covering that animal with their sin, with their guilt, with their shame, and then it died in their place, and then the worshiper was then covered, that they were washed clean. And what happens with Jesus is he comes, and he is covered with his own righteousness, his patience, his compassion, his love, his holiness. And then he allows himself to be stripped of all that and to be covered with our sin, with our shame, with our guilt. And so now he pays for it in our place. And then what do we get? All those, all those clothes that he took off to be covered with our sin. Now we get it covered with us, his righteousness, his holiness, his love. And all that, you know, there's, there's the, the metaphor of clothing being taken off from our old life is very common in the New Testament that it's like strip off all those things that are part of your old life, all the, the malice, all the gossip, all of the bitterness and the resentment. Strip that all off and now put on the clothing that Christ has given you. Be hidden in Him. Don't hide behind religion. Be, have your life hidden in Him, Colossians 3, and put on all the things that He's given you. And we're always going to be reaching for something to cover up. And what we want to do is to reach for Jesus. I want to give you this little metaphor of how we can think about um, our lives. Is that this little plant stick, if I read the back, it'll tell me how much light the plant needs, how much water, uh, what kind of soil it needs. And if we just took this, you know, if pretend there's a little plant here, and then we hit it, put a jar or whatever over it, now it would be cut off from all those things it needs, from light, 
from water, its soil would get depleted. And Jesus, we can't, we're not going to cover it in depth, but what he go, where he goes in the next rest of this chapter is like, you are hiding from God, and here's where it's going to go. This place is going to be destroyed. Uh, the temple's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Uh, there's going to be uh, wars, and all these horrible things happen. And that's what happens to Adam and Eve, is that when they turn from God, there's this curse that comes. And he's saying, look, the consequences of you hiding from God, the natural and logical consequence is death. That if you cover yourself up, uh, with your religion so that you don't have access to his light and water and life anymore, that this is where it's going to lead to death. And the church, we've talked about becoming a campfire of God's love, that the place off, this ought to be the last place that we feel like we need to hide, even though it can become the place we do hide, that this is a place where we can be real and be loved, and in being real and being loved, we can be changed because we come out of hiding into the light of God's love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these passages that are challenging. Would you help us as we leave here to not feel like we need to hide from you, but that we can come into the light to receive the covering you've given, the covering of Jesus' righteousness, his status and standing with you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.